What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, what are you doing over there? Well, you know, it's a brave new world, apparently. So there's plenty of indoor activities for everybody. Yeah. yeah. I'm just busy at my home right now, Skyping you in between my uh, online lessons with people. Yeah, that's good. I've seen that you've started to change your platform a little bit because we can't go off and do our overseas seminars or local seminars or even catch up with friends and colleagues in the park. We can actually change that to online. So there's plenty of uh, dog training opportunities for people. They Mm -hmm. can get in touch with us online. But you know what else they should do in this time of uh, difficulty and isolation? What's that? Stockpile dog training equipment. Wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah, if they're in Australia, they can get that equipment from Ironswick Dog Quip. And if they're in North America, they could get it from Canine Dynamics. What about if they need some tasty treats for their dogs? Well, if they need tasty treats for their dogs, the best place to get that is from Bright's Bites. So they can visit our friend Mark LaPointe, the Ferminator up in Queensland, and Kylie, who's in Victoria. Absolutely. Yeah. May as well stockpile dog equipment while you're stockpiling toilet paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> so before we wind this ridiculous ad up, tell our people how they can find you if they're looking for you for online consultations. Yeah, you can go to my website. It's operantcanine.com.au. There's a training tab and there's the book a session. You can do that there. I'm doing them over Zoom now. It's really cool. We can share screens and we can talk and Mm. I'm really happy with it. How about you? Are you doing that? Yeah, I'm doing a few consults. I've started doing a few. I've been approached to do a few more. So people can either contact me directly and we can set something up or they can contact my team. I've got Kana and Twisty and Tegan from Canine Evolution. They're doing online consults. And well, you're still allowed to. They're doing the social distancing of one-on-one consults if people are, are well and they're presenting okay. So they're going through all the correct procedures with that and we're still doing all our daycare at Pet Resorts Australia. Perfect. Yeah, there's plenty of options for people in a crisis. There's plenty of people around the world offering great services and great techniques. So take advantage of it while you can. Yeah, get on it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And now, a word from our sponsor. Good morning, gentlemen. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Buffhead. Jason Furman. How you going, guys? This is the Buffhead episode. With this is actually a <laughs> planned call. It's not us just ringing you out of the blue to try and grab some kind of hilarious soundbite. Uh, well, I thought you must have been hard up for guests or something. <laughs> We've been talking about this for months, you liar. When you said that to me, like, oh, what are you hard up for guests? I'm like, have you forgotten a couple of months ago when I was saying, hey, come up with a time when we can talk to you? Dude, I'm old as dirt. I forget what my name is half the time. <laughs> hey, so for everyone that doesn't know, well, I don't know how you could not know. Not now. Jason Firm is an old friend of both of ours and been in the dog industry since Jesus was around. 
and was our first sponsor before we did anything, before mm. we had any listeners. Jason got in contact with us and said, hey, I want to sponsor the show. And we said, well, mate, we don't even know whether we're going to continue doing this. And he said, no, I want to advertise right from the get-go. And it was a few months before we actually yeah. did it because we were like, oh, well, you know, well, <laughs> once we let someone advertise, then it's a real thing and we might just want to stop this at any minute now. So from the bottom of our heart, mate, thank you very much for that support. And that was a clear, I think for both of us, that was a, a motivation that was like, oh, okay, this is a real thing. We've got to keep going. And that was a couple of years ago. I mean, you are an abrasive old prick, but you do have a heart of gold. Oh, abrasive is generous. Being very, very generous. <laughs> so we've had a few different ads and all of them are us ambushing you and you you swearing at us and it's, and it's all being pretty mean to each other on the phone. So let's unpack that. People must think, why do they talk to this bloke like that? Who is this bloke? And why does he sell such amazing dog equipment? So let's go back to the start, mate. How did you get going in dogs? What's the story? Um, it start, basically started with my dad. He fancied himself a uh, big time duck hunter and quail hunter. So we always had a couple of filthy labs around the house growing up. They weren't anything special. They sort of retrieved the odd duck and chase the odd quail, but they were nothing, nothing spectacular. I wasn't a fan of them, but I sort of got into archery at about 12 and then got sick of that. And around the 14, 15 year old mark, I got very serious about chasing dogs, chasing pigs with dogs. And that's sort of where I started, like just with crossbred dogs, Mastiff crosses, Arabs, the odd Kelpie, just pretty much anything we could get our hands on back then. There was no one really really breeding set sort of Arabs or Arabs were around, but no one really cared for them. Cause like sad as I say, it was pig and dogs were pretty disposable back then. You were sort of, they were just one of those things. You didn't worry about them too much. Hmm. How long were you involved in chasing pigs for? Oh, well, I still, I still do. Not as much as I, I used to, but I'm, I'm still a fairly avid hunter, but I don't, I don't use dogs anymore. I sort of got out of chasing pigs with dogs. Oh, I would have been about 92. Okay. So I sort of, I got in the security industry in about, I think it was 84. I was just 16, started bouncing down the Gold Coast. Did that for a couple of years, uh, left school, just had a big blow up with the girl I was seeing when I was like 17, as you do all hot blood and emotion and all that sort of jaya. And I got Jack of the Gold Coast. So I uh, just, with a couple of guys that I went to school with, we disappeared out to a place called Dirrambandi out in Western Queensland, near St. George. So we spent a year boxing pigs and roos for a living mm -hmm. and accrued more dogs and more dogs and more dogs and more dogs. And by the time we moved back to the Gold Coast, we were stuffed. We were emotionally ruined from shooting every night of the week and we had a few dogs that we sort of kept a few most of the dogs that we had out there we sort of gave away to property owners or other guys that were still hunting and i came back and went back into clubs and the guy that i was working for he had a security company it's probably back then we're talking 88 by far and away the biggest dog provider on the Gold Coast. And he'd said to me one night when I was standing on the door of the old Hotel Pacific, he says, you want to do some static work? And I'm like, well, whatever that is, yeah, why not? Have you got a dog? And I said, yeah, I've got a Ridgeback Cross Doberman of all things. And he said, well, bring her down. We'll have a look at her, see if she works. And yeah, never look back. I just, that's the end of it for me. I was, I was done. I was hooked. 
So let, let me just go back a step. The pig stuff you're doing, that was professionally, right? Like you and yeah, those crew yeah, guys were. Yeah, right. So a lot of people probably wouldn't be aware. We had Tonks on the show talking about hunting pigs and mm. how it is environmentally necessary, but also it is a full-time job for a lot of people is because yeah. of the people don't understand in Queensland there, there's literally millions of wild boar that tear apart cane fields and banana plantations and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, and, and take a lot of stock. Like where, where we were hunting was a sheep area, and you would have heard of a place called Cubby Station. Yeah, for Obviously. people who don't know, Cubby Station is the biggest privately owned piece of land in Australia, right? It, it is. It, the biggest, I, isn't so it? I believe, I believe so. Yeah. So the properties we were hunting were on the outskirts of Cubby, and we actually, back then, they allowed hunting on Cubby, and Cubby was very big cotton plantation. And the pigs would get in there and, and wreck the cotton. They'd get in and open up sheep, eat the sheep, eat the lambs, and just cause all havoc. And we'd at that stage, Australia had a very big export market to export wild pigs to Germany. So we were getting paid per kilo. If I remember, it was it would it used to fluctuate anywhere from eighty cents to a dollar twenty. I think it was back in those days at its best. Right. So an average pig could be worth a decent pig could be worth anywhere from eighty to a hundred bucks. Yeah. Right. And dressed that, and that's dressed. That's not that's not live weight. That's with its right, intestines okay, yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. That would have been pretty lucrative then. Hey, that's probably why. Uh, it, it was really good money because we're doing pigs and we were doing roos for the pet market, kangaroos, for the dog food market. So we're getting about, I think, about 65 cents a kilo for roos. Mm-hmm. So you could put a ton of roo carcasses on you a night. So there's six to $700 in roos. Plus, back then, we were treating pigs as sort of like the cream. Mm-hmm. So you'd pick up. Anywhere up to 10 pigs a night, we're running, at, at the end of it, we're running three vehicles and a trailer on each vehicle. So, like, back then, my dad was earning, I think, about 500 bucks a week. Yeah. And we were earning anywhere up to $1,000 a night each. Yeah. But, so the money- But the money really was, hard work, though, hey? Like, oh, really- it was, it, was in, it was incredible. Like, you'd, you'd shoot from 7 o'clock at night till 4 in the morning, then you had to- if you're doing skins, you'd have to skin up, you'd clean up, you'd process your beasts. Then you'd drive the hour into what was called the box, which is where the um, wild game companies had a chiller. It was like a big refrigerated truck. Mm-hmm. You'd weigh, you'd have to physically remove every pig from the back of your ute, put it on scales, weigh them, and then you'd get a tally and then you'd get a check. At the end of every morning, you'd get a check. Right. So by the time you cleared the box, it'd be – Seven o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Some days we were feeling really energetic, and we'd go chase pigs with the dogs in the morning. Most days we just go back back to the shearers' quarters and camp. And on weekends, the people that own one of the properties that we shot on, they also owned the local hotel motel. So I was bouncing on the door of the local motel. Tony, one of the guys that came out, he was the barman, and Stephen, the other guy that came out, he was the dishwasher. So right. it was, it was a seven done. Didn't matter what we did. It was a seven day a week sort of event. Mm, yeah, real right. family affair, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, these are guys that I'm, I'm still mates with to this day. Like that's like what over 30 years ago, we're talking 80, 86, end of 87, 86 to 87. We did that. Mm. So it's super interesting history for me. I didn't know all that, but talk about the dog side of that. So you would use the dogs as bailers mostly. Cause you would then be shooting them. Go we ahead. had bailers and luggers. Mm-hmm. So your bailers are the dogs that run in and sort of harass the pig and get the pig to prop. 
and that gave the luggers enough time to sort of go in, hit the pig 90% of the time in the ear and hold the ear. Mm-hmm. And then we'd sort of, depending on the time of day, we'd run over, wheelbarrow the pig, which is pick it up by the rear legs and uh, dispatch the pig. Mm-hmm. And then we'd process the pig and, and throw it on the back of the racks on the ute. Yeah, right. It's a hell of a job. I, I can it's, see a lot of people yeah. cringing at the idea of it, but this is where your meat comes from, right? Like when you're eating, a lot of people think mm, when, they, when they they go to their butcher and they buy free range boar, <laughs> imagine it's like, it's, it's like a farm, I, but it's normal. It's like, no, this is where your free range boar comes it's from. It's just marching I, around in daisies and it just falls over one day and then someone <laughs> picks it up. It surrenders itself. I, it walks over to yeah, the farmer and just says, says, oh, I'm done. I'm ready, sir. I'm ready to, ready <laughs> yeah. to be consumed. I've lived my, I've lived my best life. Now. <laughs> yeah. it, it's funny. I upset a lot of people. No shit. <laughs> not, not, not without shooting a pig. Andy hunters because they up me about why do you do it? And, and I simply say, well, I don't subcontract my murder. Yeah. I know yeah. where my meat comes from. I, I'm involved in every single aspect of that animal's life. Yeah. From, from being born in my paddock to going back in my freezer and, and the whole process. So I yeah. just find it a, a lot more ethical. It's, it's a, a reality of the subject. World. Probably back around about the 90s, I went out shooting with a group of hunters and we spent a week out in outback New South Wales, up in the northwestern regions. And over the weekend, we shot an absolute truckload of them. The farmer up there, he was pretty happy that we dispatched a heap of them because of all the damage they were creating, wrecking fences, eating his crop. I think he was doing like grains and everything like that. And the pigs were destroying acres of it. And, uh, you know, I said to him, oh, that should give you quite a good rest. He said, mate, that will barely put a dent in it. And he said, once you've taken that territory away from those pigs, he said, others will move in. And he said, within two weeks, I'll have a fresh batch of pigs up here again. And he said, they'll completely come in and overwhelm it again. So he said, if you want to, if you guys want to come back up and go for your life, he said, you could probably spend a month here and, and barely put a dent in it. I'll, I'll give you an example. We were contracted by a um, uh, property owner out the other side of Charleville, so that's 12 hours west of Brisbane. Mm. And the previous season, he'd had approximately 5,000 lambs born, and he'd had six survive. Wow. Out of 5,000. That was all pig damage. So he said there was a few dingoes and foxes that took a few, but mostly it was pigs. Wow. The pigs had just come in, the, the ewes would be giving birth, and the, the lamb wouldn't even be out of the ewe and the pigs chewing it. Jesus. So it's just horrific. I don't take any, I don't know, jollies, I suppose you call it, from taking out feral game. It's just a fact of life. Yeah, it's, and it's, no, it's, it's, it's... It's enjoyable. It is enjoyable because it's environmental, but... It's not any sick, perverse jollies out of it. Yeah, it's like, a job. God, I've had I've had pet pigs for years. I we had house pigs. Rebecca and I had pigs living in the house, like little piglets, like Tracy does, and they'd sleep in Maduna. <laughs> it was not the first time I've had a pig in my bed, but you, you, animals animals like that, like you know what I've what I'm like with animals. I've had pigs. I've had deer. I've had goats. I've had all sorts of stuff, yeah. and it's until you've had one as a pet, you really don't appreciate them in the wild. That's just the way I think about things. I I've think Tracy a, Mammon has yeah. a lot of little yeah, piggies. Yeah, she's full around. on with a little – yeah, she's full on with a little – we had ferals. Like, we'd catch the ferals out west as a day-year-old and bring them back, and they were, they were pretty feral. They were dead set feral. A yeah. mate of mine, Brad, um, uh, I was in the army with him. He bought a, a pig – get this, Chase, you'll love it. Anyway, he paid 800 bucks. <laughs> For a pig <laughs> that he was told was a, you know, like a tiny like pig, a like pig. a potbelly oh, yeah. pig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
right? <laughs> so he's treating it as a dog. He lived in uh, the middle of nowhere with his wife out in Western Australia. It's their pet, right? Like, so it sleeps in the bed with them the whole lot. Only this potbelly pig, um, you, you can't, <laughs> your listeners can't say I'm doing the inverted fucking commas, was actually a giant pig. It grew to be a over. giant razorback. Grew to be over 100 something kilos. <laughs> right? But it's too late. It sleeps in the bed, mate. Yeah. So, like, he sleeps in the bed. They still have this pig who's over 100 kilos, and it's their dog. They go to dog parks with it. it it's a small community they live in because they're in the middle of nowhere. So all the dogs are just like, all right, I accept this weird pig. <laughs> oh, so- they are, I honestly think they're easier to train than dogs. They're smarter. The last pig we had, what was its name, Spit, it would do anything for a red frog. Literally, it would sit, it would drop, it would grunt. That was, I don't know how we got onto red frogs, but it was just. You were eating them, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't stand the flaming things. They just, <laughs> ugh, no, you get stuck in your teeth. They're very right. good at scent detection, too, which most people might Incredible. not know. Very, very good at. Some people have opted to use pigs instead of dogs for truffles. Truffles. For truffles, truffles yeah. 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 yeah, the downside with them, apparently in France, they're moving away from them because the pigs enjoy chewing Eating down them. on a $1,000 yeah, lump of truffle. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's the hard part. That's, so a, that's a training error, not a... Not well, a- they're mostly muzzle. I was watching a video on YouTube about a couple of weeks ago. They're muzzling them. Yep. All right, you then go back to the city and you're, you're bouncing and you do your first dog work, right? So Yeah. And, and you've never looked back. So that was, what did you say, that was early 90s? And so you've been... Oh, at- no, that would have been 80... 80- 80, late 87, maybe 89. Right, okay. So you've been 30-odd years, you've yeah, been... 30-plus, 30, 30 unfortunately. Uh, working dogs in security. Yeah. How is it that you're bloody using Dobermans? How did... That, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you'd think after 30 years you'd, you'd figure up. out that pointy well, dogs work. <laughs> well, I had two at Malinois <laughs> and I made that mistake twice. It was really weird. Like, I started off with that Jesse, which was a Dobie cross Ridgeback and I only ended up with that dog by fluke. She was just a giveaway out at a little town toward Texas. And um, back in those times, we didn't care what the breed was. As long as it had teeth and put on a really good show and, and bit like a crocodile, we didn't care. We had Mastiff Crosses, Roddies, Danes. One guy down the Gold Coast had a pack of build Blue Healers. Mm. We had anything. We didn't care. We got our dogs from the pound. So let me just unpack that a little bit. So... <laughs> Being just sort of random dogs that you're using for this kind of stuff, I imagine that the work to get those dogs into it, the sort of the prep work to go to to work, wouldn't look anything like what you'd imagine doing today, right? Like when I come and oh, work your dogs, no. it's, it's a it's a whole nother world compared to what would have been done then. I imagine it would have been a lot of table work. Well, there was no tables. Nobody even knew what a table was. You would start cut dogs in a car. You'd tie them to the headrest of your vehicle and you'd agitate them through the window. It's like barrier defence work. It's yeah, like yeah. working behind a fence and it was sort of – and then you'd wind the window down a little bit and then you'd, the dog's head would come out, a bit like a carjack scenario. Mm-hmm. And pretty much if a dog would take a sleeve through the window, you're like, okay, this dog's got potential. Mm-hmm. And, if it, and if it didn't, we'd take it back to the pound. It was like we all had relationships with the various – guys that ran the pounds and he'd say take these dogs have a look at them if they work they work if they don't just bring them back the next day yeah so there wasn't a matter of just straight out wastage the dogs went back to the pound whatever happened after that we didn't we never knew but it was probably one in ten dogs we that worked out yeah at and least so- you gave him a chance anyway 
Well, they had that opportunity. Like mm. a lot of dogs that just put them on a lead and they'd just go to water. Even even in the 80s when Roddies were at their, at their peak, we'd, we did find the odd Roddy that was just a clunker. But there was also just the weirdest crosses like Great Dane cross Bull Mastiff. Mm. And that was a 75-kilo dog that we used to tie him up to my old four-wheel drive and put it in neutral and he'd drag the vehicle around the car park. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was different times, different suits weren't around. Like I never saw my first bite suit probably till mid nineties. It was all, all sleeves, really crappy, crappy sleeves. Uh, you'd wrap your arm in a cricket wick, in a, in a set of cricket wick. Uh, what do you call them? The things that go on your legs? Wicket, not wickets. A cricket pads. Cricket pads. Mm. Yeah, you'd, you'd whack it around your arm and a bit of duct tape and you'd take bites from that. Or if you're feeling really, really adventurous, you'd get a bit of carpet and a beach towel and wrap that around. And <laughs> it was <laughs> like, I honestly. I bet you're happy how. that smartphones weren't around, so there isn't footage of you doing that. Oh, but that was oh, that was the old way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know, I know. That's normal back then. And then Frabo no, came along, and that was just like a god's gift to. Well, the we were training. getting we were getting sleeves from that guy, that German guy over in WA, and they were all leather sleeves, and they were just clunky. And they, oh, you put them in your car for a day in the sun, and you open the car, and it smelled like somebody died in it. And mm-hmm. It was. It was cowboy times. We didn't know any better. This is this is before the days of Learberg tapes. Like, yeah, there yeah. Was none. Of, there was like our Bible was the killer method of guard dog training. Like yeah. that was that was the ultimate. The ultimate. If you got your hands on that, you were you were a god. So it's an interesting thing to unpack a little bit, right? Because this is. It's not like we're talking like eighteen hundreds. This is only in the thirty 90s, years ago, right? Mm. But it. When you think about that in perspective, there's no YouTube, there's no Facebook, there's no social media at all, right? No. So there's VHS tape. Uh, and dog and sports is not a televised event. And so, well, then, as so, far as I know, there wasn't even dog sport. There might have been, but we did, like, we were down the Gold that's Coast. That's right. We knew nothing. That's we knew right. So, nothing about it. If you're outside Europe where Schutzen. they're actually playing those things, there right? was Schutzen. Yeah. So there'd be, there'd be Schutzen, but then even then, that's a niche thing that was happening at yeah. Schutzen clubs. For the yeah. average person who's like, okay, I'm a security guard, I'm going to work. To, well, I'm work the streets with my dog. The the only mentors you have is the people, the old mate down the street who's got a dangerous dog. Who's willing to? You can look at MVBK footage from as early as the video cameras were around, and the training is actually not too dissimilar to what's now. They had like older, bigger, heavier type suits, mm. but they were still yep. wearing suits. They've been wearing bite suits forever, and so it's easy for people who are within the industry to say, "Well, that existed. Why didn't you know? Why weren't you doing that?" And it's like, well, somebody had to actually go to Europe and learn that and then come back and be taken credibly and have well, we that disseminate that information. So it, it's a it's a different world. It doesn't – like it's only 30 years ago. It's not that big a deal, but like, it's a whole other thing. The killer was – like when, when we sort of started to uh, learn a little bit about Schutzen back then, we were actively discouraged from being participants. Mm. It was, you're a guard, you cannot be a member of our club. Oh, what if we get us get another sporting dog, like a dog just for it? No, you're a guard. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that, okay, that divide did. very much. Yeah, that divide did exist. Pat was talking about our cultural beginnings in dogs and the Australian cultural beginnings was mostly in droving dogs. Mm. You know, that's yeah, where was- that's where, where our profession was raised and uh, a lot of expertise was born in those sort of areas was Kelpies and Border Collies in outback droving of, of cattle and, and sheep. Dogs. And Roo Dogs. Were, yeah. Roo Dogs. My, my, my grandparents had Roo Dogs in Victoria and that was how they ate. Mm. They were whippet-looking cross things and they'd, they'd hunt 
roos and anything that the flaming things would catch, rabbits, yeah. wombats, whatever they could catch. We, and that's like 1800s. There was a gold school on here once, and um, yeah, there's always Kelpies, because so many people in Australia have Kelpies. There's mm. always one at a gold school. And Bart and Michael both were like, one of the dogs that was there, they were like, this dog's amazing. He's so well-driven. He's got all, like, he's so clear. He's so <laughs> stable. This dog's fantastic. They were carrying on about what a good dog he was. And it was just interesting, the perspective, because I was like, I could get you a hundred of these for a dollar. Like literally yeah. we could drive around in a truck around certain farm areas and farmers are giving them away because they only did this litter to get their next working dog and yep. they're, they're just there. But we want these Malinois, the big, pushy, powerful Malinois, like what they can get for a dollar, right, in, in Europe. Which so it's sell just, for 10 grand over here. Yeah, well, 50 by the time you get yeah. it here, right? So yeah. it's, well, a, was, it's an interesting was no perspective. Malinois back then, like in the 80s and probably up until – I probably didn't see my first Malinois until – 93. 90s. Yeah. yeah. 93, I saw my first. Danny Djokovic brought the first one out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was just none up here. And, and when I saw it, I was on a job site. Uh, there was the big Patrick Stevedores dispute. And I've turned up on site with my Roddy that I was working at the time. And I've looked at this guy and I'm like, what the hell is that thing? And he's like, it's a Malinois. And I've gone, what a shepherd cross what? And he was disgusted and like, I'm like, yeah, you can keep that shit. I'll, I'll, I'll stick to my fat wallers. And it was a whole – and there was only two in Queensland at that stage mm. and they were – nobody knew what they were. And they were nervy. They were they were the worst of what you could – what you'd want in a mal. But, but they were perfect for working behind a fence. But yeah. that was the job. And I think something that's interesting as well is like people who – you know, maybe the days of the single purpose wrecking ball are over. It's even in security work, right? Like oh, with liability and that, but you can see 100%. how people who have been doing it for a long time have come to develop that mindset and keep it because that would have been the dogs that you guys were working back then would have been that, right? Like they had their handler and it wasn't that they were trained to attack on command or guard or whatever. They would just bite anyone and everyone who to wasn't the handler. Yeah. yeah, like uh, especially on the Gold Coast, I used to do a, a nightclub down the southern end of the Gold Coast and it was called The Pit. And we used to run 20 doormen inside and two dogs in the car park. Right. And at the time, we had a mandate from the police to move on anybody that was thrown out of the premises. And if we got three bites a week, that was an underestimation. <laughs> it, it was – I don't know how I actually stayed out of jail for those couple of years. It was just <laughs> – and, and, and the police were – Based in the car park in a paddy wagon. Yeah. And and we'd go, what do we do? You know, that's a derogatory term. You're not allowed to say that paddy wagon. I said that one time and an Irish guy told me he was going to punch me. And it's a, it's actually a, it's actually a derogatory term. So what do we wagon. call it? A, a potato wagon It's a cage car. Now. It's a cage car. You have to put, you oh, put them in the God's cage sake. car. It's actually, no, but, but get this. If we're being sensitive, but it actually is like it's Paddy is in like Irish, Irish person people. Paddy and, and it's a British a term, like cat. throw them in the paddy wagon. Yeah. It's well, actually a derogatory term. They used to be called Divi Vans up here. Yeah, the Divi Vans. Yeah, yeah, Divi yeah. Vans. I don't, know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where that term came from. But well, there we'll used to be a pub song in Australia, like everyone would get drunk and go, we're going home in the back of a Divi van. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we used to sing that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. Only, you're only a year younger than me, Cookie, so don't pull that young one younger than you, Robbie. <laughs> How old are you, Furman? 50, just 51. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm 50 this year. Yeah, so it's only one year, brother. Yep. But I look. Well, I we're, look we're so from much the. Better. Yeah, that's what you think. We're, we're <laughs> <laughs> that's what the chicks. That's what the chicks tell me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, we're from the the same vintage for sure. Like everything that you're talking about is ringing a lot of bells from my own experiences in, in the late a, 80s a, and a 90s. Parallel culture. Yeah, like very what much. Went off, what went on in Victoria was probably a little bit more finesse than what was going on up it here. Was. It was very – it was, cowboy, it was yeah. cowboy country up here. It's like – I, could, I won't mention any names, but like there was like we were selling dogs to Papua New Guinea, like fifteen hundred dollars for just a feral dog. Yeah, and you'd be lucky to get that dog out of the crate without getting mauled. And we're like rubbing our hands together. Let's how many more do you want? Yeah, yeah. And it was it was it, it was a great time. I, I certainly wouldn't want to go back there again, but it certainly it certainly made me. W- what I am today, if that's a positive or a negative, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, that was all part of my upbringing too. I mean, we had kennels full of dogs that were going over to Papua New Guinea to work with security agencies over there. I mean, that was yeah. during the real gold boom time over there. I mean, they they just had a thirsty demand for dogs. I know it's still going on, but not like it was back then. I mean, oh, you could- we were sending we were sending dogs to Moresby Weekly, to yep. Lay, to yep. Hagen. Yep. Bougainville had finished by then, but like anywhere, Madang, anywhere where there was there was dramas, we'd be sending packs of ten dogs, mm. and the dogs are in compounds and the only real thing the dog had to do was bite anyone that moved inside that compound and stick six to seven feet off the fence yeah because the locals were had like long bits of bamboo yeah and they'd just be the dogs yeah just pike them as soon as they hit the fence you would have seen then in your time working dogs in security that and now your involvement in dog sports and the the general community like a total 180 a total change in that dogs have gone from to work the streets, the dog must be dangerous and able to be handled by a person to now yep. that you need a lot of clarity in the dog. You need, and you're talking there, if you guys got three bites a week, you considered that a slow week to now. Yeah, it'd be a quiet one. Like a one bite for a security guard is a disaster. Like the last thing you want is for your dog to actually bite anyone because it's See. a court case and it's a whole, mm. and, and, and of course, like, you know, aside from the fact that you don't want to destroy someone's body, but no. it's a it's a big deal. Like it's a, a dog bite is a massive event. You're definitely going to court. There's definitely something happening over that. Whereas you guys are just letting dogs street that sweep the streets. Before. Yeah, like well, the was dog, that was dog sport. That yeah, was well, dog that sport. Was, <laughs> that was dog sport. Redneck dog sport. <laughs> yeah. Like like now the average the average guard that's that's working a dog in Queensland would probably never see a bite in ten years. Yeah. yeah. It's just it's which is just good. Nice, that's good. It's that's just the, yeah. The areas that I'm sort of covering in the last nine years, we've had five and two muzzle strikes, which is unusual. That's very, very unusual. But the average guard just, it just, it's a deterrent. That's all it's really become. Yeah. Mm. The quality of the dog is not as important as it used to be because of communications and smartphones and cameras, and you're not swinging in the wind like we used to. So, like, we'd be doing, say, a shopping centre. When they were building Myers at Pacific Fair, we'd be one guy with a pack of dogs. Mm-hmm. And we, this is pre-mobile phones. If you needed to ring someone, you had to carry 40 cents in your pocket and find a phone booth and yeah. hope like hell you didn't get flogged on the way to the phone booth. Mm. Yeah, it, It's different. Yeah, it, it's completely different. So would you say that the use of the dogs over that 30 years has changed from back then the dog was literally your only backup and was 100% needed in the fight to now the dog is actually a deterrent and is, is what is going, trying to avoid the fight. But if that actually does happen, then, you know, you're, you're calling in the police at that point. It's a funny one because in Queensland, the legislation 
the handler is licensed, not the dog. There is no assessment on the dog. You could literally go to the pound today and have that working on the street tonight. Right. So you've got a lot of companies up here that are unethical ones that literally just have border collie cross staffies mm-hmm. working on the street because they don't want the liability. But it, it's it's a funny one. It, it's all where you work. If you're doing, say, an urban environment, you could pretty much have a copper towards you in 10 minutes, roughly. Whereas that situation where I had just before Christmas, where that clown had a shot at me, we didn't see police for 40 minutes. Yeah, right. Mm. So it, it's a different, it, it's, it's all locational. But So talk that, about that now that you just dropped that, now that you're a badass gunfighter. Uh, oh, please, I ran, man. <laughs> what happened? I was, I, was, I was doing an escort, a staff escort at a uh, licensed venue in a rural part of up here, a little bit more rural. Um, it was peeing down rain. It was a crappy night. I was lazy. That so wouldn't like, be you. I don't believe it. No, I'm like, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to get the dog out of the ute. I'll just go around the back. I'll do the escort. So the dog's asleep in the car. I'm standing at the back door, and then all of a sudden I see a guy smashing the side door of the, the building with a sledgehammer, and I'm going, oh, what's going on here? So I've yelled up, yelled at the guy, grabbed a bar stool that was outside and gone, I'm going to clock this clown with a bar stool. And then his mate took two steps around from him and pointed out, well, I assume it was a 1911-45 looking pistol, and I ass puckered, <laughs> turned around, and ran my fat ass back to the car, and he took two two pot shots at me. Yeah, right. Damn. So, yeah, and that was like it. Like on the video, it is the funniest thing you've ever seen. Just this big fat slob running around the back of the building, one hand on my belt, trying to keep my belt up. <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep your ass in your pants. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I reckon if you zoomed in, my whole freckle was hanging out. We need the video. Oh, yes, we need get the, the video. video. They won't give it to me. Oh, <laughs> God. And in my hand, I've got my phone breathlessly trying to ring triple zero. So, yeah, it was an it was an interesting evening. I want to see that video evening. just to see you run. I, d- I want to well, see what only, that looks like. The only part of the video I've seen is the guy shooting at me. He lets off two shots, then he gets a stovepipe jam in his 1911. He goes to clear it. He drops the magazine. The magazine's exploded on the ground and all the ammo's scattered everywhere, and then he's gone in and tried to get into the building. There's your trouble. So, no need to drop the magazine on a stovepipe. You're lucky he didn't know what he was doing. You and I know that. <laughs> You're lucky <laughs> you didn't I, just tap and rack, and then you, yeah. you would have had a 45. Uh, you would have had a lot of freckles in your back. size hole in your ass. I, look, yeah. I thought I was pretty safe when he did that boys in the hood 45 degree angle pointing. And that's out. why he got the stovepipe if he was doing yes. that to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, yeah, my adrenaline was pretty pretty high for a couple of hours after it. But I was more I was more concerned about the about the three girls inside the building. Yeah, right. With these with these guys with a sledgehammer and a and a pistol trying to get in there to uh, get the cash. Yeah. So the only thing that saved them was the, the building had a smoke cloak. So the building just fills up with smoke from a nightclub and it, you can't see your hand in front of your face. Right. And that, that saved the girls. That All that, all that got, got taken was their handbags and that was well, So it. that's a security but, measure of the building. It fills with smoke. Yeah, yeah. It's, you're hooked into your alarm or into a uh, panic button and it, it's 
10 times worse than any nightclub you've ever been into. Yeah, yeah that's, right. that's, same, that's intelligent. Same stuff. It's mm. same stuff, but it just it pumps it out. It's in, it's incredible. There's tons of videos on YouTube, and it just blows you away how good it is. Mm. Yeah, right. I've never but seen that. It, yeah, it could have got, the situation could have got really bad because I only saw two guys, but there was another three guys in the vehicle out the front of the building. Yeah, right. So what do you do? You run away. I'm, I'm old and fat. The <laughs> dog was in the car. I'm out of there, brother. Years ago, when I was working the streets with my dog, I used to work at this place in Paran. The security guards used to just throw guys outside and then just bar the door shut. And um, yep. it was just me and the dog outside. So they were really pissed and angry by the time they <laughs> hit the concrete. And, uh, yeah, it was Harley and I left to do battle with them outside. And that was the first time I ever saw Harley actually – open a guy up. And it was the first time I'd actually been in a situation where I'd seen a, a person take a really serious bite. And the, the first one he actually did was he hit a guy in the chest and he opened him up from his pectoral muscle down because he, he came at me with a bottle. It was a pretty dire situation. It was an interesting training video for me or, or training scenario, not video, training scenario for me because I froze when the guy came at me because I'd never been in a oh, I'm going to kill you situation. I mean, I've had people threaten me. I've been in lots of fist fights at that point in time, but I'd never been in a situation where a guy legit came for me with a with a broken bottle. And um, it's, it's, Harley, it's a complete level of fuckery. It, it, mate, it, it's it, uh, a whole different world. Until it happens, like everybody says, you do this, you do that, and they give you life advice. But and I mean, and I'd been training martial arts for years. I was actually surprised it happened. Like I nearly shit myself. And um, Harley didn't bat an eyelid. He just fucking launched at him and smashed him straight in the chest and shook him like a rag doll. And this guy was all of probably about 6'2", 6'3", big sort of wharfy dude, and um, he fucked him up real good and proper. It's one of the most disturbing it is. and unfucking believable things that can happen. Your, your adrenaline peaks out. You're loving it at the same time as you're absolutely hating it. It's, you, it's, it's a really, really, really weird situation. It's a terrible now, situation do, when you first I, get I do it. Everything, I do everything I can to avoid any confrontations mm. now. I just, I'm just too old. Couldn't be bothered. Don't want the paperwork. And I don't like claims on my insurance policy. Well, mate, I had a, <laughs> I, I had like a virtual blackout um, when it happened. Cause I, it was, very difficult to remember all the what was going on right at the time. And I mean, and even when his friends came and got him and took him into the car, they were trying to run me over in the street. It was just, it was diabolical what was going on. And it was just like, if you watched it, it would probably look like the Keystone Cops episode because I was just running around the street trying to avoid getting run over and they smashed through a fence, half knocked myself out. It was the most ridiculous <laughs> night ever. I mean, there were police and ambulance everywhere. It was just bizarre what was actually going on but at least you weren't trying to hold your pants up yeah but <laughs> but you know like i'm listening to you telling your stories and i'm reminiscing back on on old times and it was it was a little bit the wild west back then i mean the domestic feral and nuisance animal act it wasn't written it wasn't considered no. there wasn't so much grief and strife from a dog biting someone i mean yeah sure it there was paperwork involved my boss who i was working for at the time he was pretty stressed about it because it was a pretty serious bite it did end up going to court, but it never really got anywhere. Interesting times. Certainly interesting yeah, times. I, I certainly don't regret them. It was all learning I'll, experience. I, I, learned, I learned a shitload not what to do more than I learned what to do. Mm. So tell us then about the transition from that, Jay. So you, you're in that world of sort of what we would call old school, any dog, 
what I like to refer to as the one-dimensional wrecking ball style dog. Yeah. And now you're a big part of the dog sport community in Australia. You're sponsored like, you know, most trials that go on, you're like your company, Ironswick's providing trophies and that sort of stuff because you, you're a big provider of gear. But how did that come to be, mate? Like, because most people it, in that space have, you know, sort of fought any change and, you know, the industry changed around them and they aged out of it rather than up keeping updated. So why is it that you made that change and yet still insist on owning Dobermans. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of it sort of started sort of mid-90s. We started getting a few more seminars out here. We had Stuart Hilliard. I think it was Stuart. Yeah, I'm sure it was Stuart Hilliard. We had a guy for, that was LAPD dog handler, Donnie Yarnell. He came out. There was uh, plenty of people that came out. And we were, as guards, we were seeing these incredibly obedient dogs, like all of us look at focus here. We don't want that, but just on off switches, clear clarity. They weren't the hardest dogs, but in their window, they were beautiful. Yeah. And we sort of started taking a few of those sort of lessons um, on board. We were very much, everybody was yank and crank back then. There was no, no one knew what a clicker was. There was no food. It was all compulsion based. Mm. And I think, I had to change because the quality of the dogs that we were getting or getting access to was was changing. Like it was nothing in the in the eighties or nothing no eighties and nineties to find a very good Roddy. It was easy. Or you shepherd. Could pretty Yeah, there was there was a few good shepherds. I'm talking just the Gold Coast. There was mm. a good few shepherds. Mm. But you could find pretty much anything you wanted and then it just got worse. Like I had Roddies for years and I got to the point where I just could not I could not find a decent rot in Queensland. Importing one wasn't an option, not back then. There was a few guys in Victoria breeding rotties and they were very insular. They were like, nah, nah, you're too far away. And there was just nothing around. And a guy that was working working on a side, oh, what, he had a couple of very, very good Dobermans. Like, regardless of what you say about the greyhounds, these these two dogs were, were, were spectacular. And he had a... I was very impressed, and Sal was involved in back then. He was involved in Schutz, and he was in I think it was the Brisbane Sporting Dog Club, and he had a litter of puppies. And I'm like, I my bitch was getting very old. She was about eight years old. I'm like, I've got to get another dog. So I went out on the limb, and I got a male from that litter, and that was it. I he was everything and more than I ever wanted in a dog. I horrendously let that dog down. He could have been just a world beater, but my training skills were nowhere up to up to the level of that dog, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, it, and it eats me. It really gets on my goat that the number of dogs that I've failed purely because I'm not up to the scratch. Like, you remember my old male, Ike, the big mm-hmm. red turd. Phenomenal dog. Like, just would not back down from anybody or anything, but I failed him. And that's really what's pushed me on, like just to not let that happen again. I just, I won't let it happen again. End of story. You know, I think that it's interesting what you say, you say you fail the dogs, but I feel like every dog is sort of practice for the next one. You're evolving. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. hundred percent. Everything, you know, like even my, my dog now, there's so many things that I wish that I could do differently. Mm. And because I've, you know, you have to kind of see things through. You, you start on a program and, and now I see three years later, I see some holes that I created before. And so you think, oh, okay, well, I won't do that again with the next dog. I'll do this. And, and that's how we progress. You know, I think it's really super common that every dog should be 
trained better and more thoughtfully than the one beforehand because you learn from the lessons of him. I tend to call my the current dog I'm working my current mistake dog. <laughs> it's because I make like every everybody will make mistakes on every single dog, no matter what. You Absolutely. can get a dog to a PSA three, and Jerry could say, "Okay, there's stuff that I wish I had have done better." Yeah, and of that's course. that's that's how I think. Like Lorca, not the hardest dog. She saved my balls on the street, but I know there's things that I could have done better. And it's it's just if I if I can't say that I've no I'm I'm I haven't grown and I'm just wasting my time. But that's mm-hmm. the origins of life, really. I mean, a lot of people live life oh, looking I'm in not, reverse, and they, oh, you know, yeah, like oh, you know, people. I I can see life in the rearview mirror, what I could have done better, and so forth. But I mean, the reality is, we're learning as we go. It's an evolution, you know. But you've got to put those mistakes into practice. I agree. You've you got to learn from you, them. Mm. Yeah, if if you can identify your mistakes, that's half of the problem. It's the next the battle is making sure that those mistakes you don't have that same mistake again. Yeah. And a lot a lot of people just don't do it. They have their set box that I can only train in this particular style, manner, whatever you want to call it. And mm. if the dog doesn't fit that their style, they'll just get another dog. Yeah. And to me that's yeah, that's not that's not how I operate. Yeah, we just did a whole episode on that, the last one about staying you know, flexible within your training and adapting to the dog rather than being yes. rigid in a in a, a method. Let's talk about Ironswick. Uh, so that original Doberman you had, did you breed from him? Is he the is he the yes, start of your? The, he's he's that was oh ninety three, not about ninety three, and that was where I started. I also had a very good bitch, and me being like I don't even think I was thirty. I like I was probably mid twenties. It's like you you breed the two dogs you got. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, I've got one good bitch. I've got one good dog. Put them together, and luckily enough, they produced very, very well. And then I got deep into the pedigrees, and I remember buying a program called Family Tree Maker, and it was for humans. And I used to have two nights a week off, and I'd sit at home on my two nights a week off, dial up internet, Googling, just Googling for Googling. and I'd It wasn't even Google the, then, dude. It was Netscape. Oh, I would, yeah, no, it was Yahoo. I think it was. It was, something, it was the equivalent of it was equivalent of equivalent of Yahoo yep. of Google. And the, all the walls of my spare bedroom in the house was this pedigree. It looked like I would, yeah, it looked like mm. I was chasing a murder and joining up all these red lines and and it was and I ended eventually tracked that dog back to eighteen ninety eight to the to the second and third registered Dobermans. Yeah, and then it's just since then I'm just I. I so I'm too deep to get out. So tell us a little so bit I, about the history of the Doberman, because it does have a pretty interesting history. Well, Lewis, Lewis Doberman, or uh, Herr Herr Doberman. Lewis, yeah, Herr Herr Lewis, he was um, a tax collector, mm. and he developed the breed to basically stop him getting rolled. Mm-hmm. The ears, the cropping, they didn't, they didn't initially crop. The cropping was just a cosmetic thing. You'll get Doberman enthusiasts saying, oh, they've got to be cropped because they're going to get hematomas in their ears and blah, 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 blah. Rubbish. Load of shit. It's purely, purely for looks. Same as same as the tail. Domans do have thin, crappy tails, mm-hmm. and you get the odd one that'll get happy tail, but it's, God, oh, God, I don't even know how many Domans I've had. Over 100 bred, 30-something litters. And I only ever had to dock one because of happy tail. It's right. just, it's purely cosmetic. 
and it's a good handle. You ever tried lifting a Doc Doberman into the back of a ute? You get, you're going to get a handful of balls or you're going to get a handful of dirty dog vagina. I don't know if, it, if it's a urban myth or anything like that, but I was told a story a while ago. I'd like to really delve into the origins of this, but I was told that docking came from, well, it's come from issues in, in carpooling and so forth that some people have claimed, but however, when dogs of war were about, they removed the tail so people couldn't use it as a handle. Yeah, possibly, but... Possibly. Like, realistically, you're going to want to try to, if you're bare-arming a dog, do you really want to reach around and try to grab his tail? I'll... I'll well, it's not for the anybody. person getting mauled. It's for the other people, you know, like grabbing oh, the dog. I pity, and- I pity the poor bastard that's having a dog ripped off his arm. Yeah, feels like but, an old wives' tale because I mean it could be. I, I, I don't are, know. Their I, legs are right there as well. It's I'm just not an authority on, but even though even during that time, like these dogs were dressed with <laughs> armor and blades strapped to them as well. Like they, they had. There probably is a little bit of truth to it, but mm. I think it's, it's. If anyone's out there who does know, like has an official response to it. Put it in. I'd love to read up and learn a little bit more about but, that information. But with the docking, I had a litter of puppies born the day after the docking ban came to into Australia, mm. and I was like, I was pissed off for about five minutes, and I'm like, oh well, too bad. You got tail dobements. Mm. What what else could be worse? Yeah, I could own Roddy's. <laughs> and so, but what I think is interesting, and just unpack it a bit for me, is the Doberman is actually the only breed of dog that was designed as a man work dog, right? Like so As far as I know. Like a Rottweiler probably, is a droving are. dog, Malinois is a herding dog, and of course they haven't been used for that in a long time, but the yeah. Doberman was what designed. Happened? What happened? So that's my question. <laughs> <laughs> Two words. Show wankers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They have annihilated the breed. Look, the the breed in the eighties the breed was hard. It was nothing to find a good dobe. You could find them everywhere. Mm. But they're a handful. It's like a very good mal these days. You can't you can't put a really good hardcore mal into a pet home. So the show breeders dumbed it down. Same as the Roddies, they dumbed the Roddy down. They dumbed the the shepherd down, and it just, especially with Dobermans, they just seem to get dumbed down further and further and further and further to the point where. I would not buy a Doberman in Australia, but that's a personal choice. I will not buy a dog in Australia, not a Doberman anyway. Mm. You'll so, be, geez, there'll be some yeah. flared up. Oh, it'll, 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 it'll upset people, <laughs> but please, when have I not upset people? There, I mean, there are some good working Dobes around, but they are unicorns. Oh, you, they you are. You rarely are. see them. Of course. They yeah. are unicorns. Of course. But the same applies to Rots, to Shepherds, to Malinois. Yeah. The, the majority... Like when you really look at it, they're the one percenters in any breed. Uh, shepherds, the dogs that- shepherds, you've got a, you've got better odds because there is still good kennels that are still producing reasonable shepherds around, and uh, I mean good to reasonable shepherds. Um, yeah, but I still reckon you, you're still in that in that lower percentile. You, you are like the, the, the percentage is shrinking. Is the percentage is shrinking. I'll give you that. And I was in the heyday of the Rottweiler in Australia. I was fortunate enough to grow up and do my apprenticeship in Victoria during the time of the 90s to mid-90s when working Rottweilers were absolutely amazing. I have seen the rise and fall of the Rottweiler uh, in the working capacity. But saying that, those dogs that we had in the 80s and 90s, there's just no place for them anymore, unfortunately. They're just – 
there's, there'll be a little place for them, yep. but the feral street cleaning wrecking balls, they're just, no, nah, they're just like me. They were Vikings of their era, and then there's no need for them anymore. Yeah. It's not a time of war. I've had this conversation with a few people who, yeah. like I was saying, are sort of stuck in that mentality of the, the street dog needs to be this single-dimensional wrecking ball. Mm. And I say, yep. mate, the only people who are putting their dogs into into the position to bite people on the regular are doing so in the community. So if for police who are doing that, they're doing so in the community. So you can't have just a dangerous dog that bites the first person it finds. It's got to bite with like, and savagely the person it's told to, not just anybody that it can get in its range. Right. And the other people who are using dogs that need the most powerful and capable dogs are your special forces type guys. And they have, the dogs have to be able to work for multiple handlers. So that one, that dog that is just like, you're the the only person in the world that's not getting destroyed. Mm. That dog is useless in a special forces unit because the dog's got to work in a team and yeah, it's got to be a multi-handled dog. Yeah. And so he'll yeah. probably change handlers every couple of years. And even if yep. you're capable of that, like even on the job, he has to take it, take, and um, if, take if direction from down, others. Yeah, that's right. If the handler goes down, they've got to get that dog out. Yeah. It's, so the way we use dogs has changed a lot since then. And, and I think that the, the type of dog reflects that. Yeah. Like I, I won't, some parts of me say it's for the worse, but generally speaking, I'd say it's for the better. Like I'm spending a lot of time and effort and cash trying to add lines that have never been in the country to bring that work ethic back. I think I'm getting there. I'm not 100% where I was when I first started, but I'm getting close. And that's what's what's happening. The dobe in Australia is becoming very line-bred, overbred. Our coefficient of inbreeding's just disgusting because we're on an island and we've all bemoaned this before. It's bloody expensive to import a dog. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. Like, I've imported three Dobermans so far, and all up, they cost me nearly $30,000 each. Yeah. One had Pymetra a week after she came out of quarantine, so that was that out of the breeding pool. The male I imported was an absolute piece of crap. And the, the bits that I the bits that we've got left has only given me nine puppies. So out of 90 grand, I've got nine pups. Yeah. Yeah. So it's... it's it's, it's a big risk, risk. And, and I'm doing it all over again at the end of this year. Mm, good luck, sir. Yeah, yeah, I need it. <laughs> hey, uh, so how did you get into selling dog gear? When, when did that come around? That started from my utter disgust. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can't just talk normally, can you? Everything's got, everything's an extreme. Yeah. Well, I'm trying not to swear, so I can't use, I can't use the c word. And I well, you can use it. I'll just have to hit the name. Fenton button. Yeah. yeah, you can leave that Fenton out. I think that's the one of the least funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Oh, I shut just, up, you grizzly I old bastard. I don't get the whole Fenton thing. I'm too old. But anyway, I got uh, – what it started off is I ordered um, a couple of bite helmets for a couple of guys that were working with me, and they took nine months to deliver, not because – well, he did. the person didn't have them in stock – and he doesn't, didn't, well, back then, didn't order them until he got the cash. And I got really disgusted in it. Then a really good mate of mine in the States was making the Brahma Web leads. So I started selling them on his behalf. And that took off. And then it just, just steamrolled, steamrolled from there. I don't do it. It's, it's another one of my hobbies. I don't do it to make money, I'd say. The greater majority of the money, I just 
just give away. I give away a lot of a lot of equipment. I don't so much sponsor too much of the dog sports anymore. Got badly burnt, but I'll support PSA with every cent I got. But it's 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 fun. I enjoy it. It's great. Get to meet good people, and it's yeah, it's enjoyable. And I have an endless supply of tugs. <laughs> and and you've travelled quite a bit, like to the Philippines, to manufacturers and stuff, right? To to get the stuff to the quality that you want. Like it's you're not just reselling; you're actually sort of driving, surveying. Yeah, mm. pretty much everything I sell, I have a relationship with the maker. Whether it's stuff that I get specifically made in the Philippines, whether it's the HS product, I've got a very strong relationship with HS. Everybody I deal with, I've I've always tried to maintain a very open, honest, like I'm a dickhead at the best of times, but I'm not douchey about my dealings. I just, you only, you lose your customer. You get one customer once and then you're done. Mm -hmm. I speak to Greg Van Curen from ECT quite regularly. So I try to keep those relationships very solid. I'm I'm not just looking on Google. Oh, do you want this? Oh, we'll stock that. No, I don't, I don't operate like that. Yeah, so I thought it was worth pointing out because you've been sponsoring the show right from the start and we do an ad for your Einswick Dog Quip, but it's actually just a little side hustle for you and it's more of a – I've always had that feeling that it was just that you only sell the products of people that you're in touch with and it's kind of your – you're just a, a hub for the equipment of people you like. That's, that's the feeling well, that I've yeah, got. That, like. And I don't like people getting ripped off. Mm-hmm. Like, I, yeah, I really – when I found out the wholesale price on all of this stuff, I was disgusted at what we were paying in Australia. I'm yeah. like, fuck off. There is no way I'm paying $35 for something that costs you 2 bucks. Eat my – okay, well, I won't say that. <laughs> not going to happen. But I think you changed the way prong collars are sold in Australia for sure because they they used to be sold – you could pay up to 200 bucks for a prong collar. And you still can. Yeah. I, and, I, I, like I make money on them, but it, I don't make a ton of money. Yeah, I mean, it's a business. you got to got to make it worth your time. But it was interesting when you were selling them for – what are you selling for near 100 bucks or something like that? I can't remember. Um, if you're not with – if you're not under the direct supervision of a balanced trainer – they're anywhere up to 100. It's full. It's full price. 135 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. But then. But if. But if that trainer will give you a discount code, you go to the website, put that discount code, and it, it's like 45 dollars off. Yeah. So it's just under 100. Which is a big. Which is a big whack. Like that's a lesson. That's a like a half private session. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is cool in that, like, you know, it's not like you can stop people buying prong collars. There's plenty of places all over the world they can buy them, but they get them way cheaper if it's to use under supervision of someone you know and can yeah, and expect it, like that they can implement correctly. It does cause me a lot of grief. Like, I get abusive text me- like, not text messages through Facebook pages, just people losing their mind because I won't give them the discount. I'm like, dude, show me a certificate. I will give you the discount. Go to a balanced train. I've used prong collars all my life. That's nice. Go get a discount code. Then you can get the discount. Yeah. And it's also my way of giving back to the industry because like the ind- I've gained a lot from this industry over a long, long time. Mm. And if I can't, like, shit, 100 bucks for the average person these days or 135 bucks, that's a lot of money to spend on a, on a collar. Yeah. And then they've got the trainer's fees on top of it and blah, 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 blah. And let's face it. Dog training is a luxury. So if, if I can help that trainer a pufteenth by the trainee saving 40 bucks, 30 bucks, whatever, eh, it doesn't worry me. Like, I'm not going to starve. 
There's no, I'm, I'm certainly not going to starve. <laughs> I'm laughing here. What a fucking bogan you are. But uh, I'm thinking, I wonder if anybody in America will know what a poofteenth is. <laughs> <laughs> like, an, itsy, an itsy bitsy teeny weeny bit. <laughs> I'm not a bogan, I'm just a wordsmith. Oh, you're a bogan. Let's jump on to, uh, we've talked about dog equipment and your history. Let's talk about your weight loss journey that you're going on at the moment. Yeah, that's a struggle. I have to go back a bit. About when do we do silver, Pat? What's that? Four years ago? Yeah, five years ago. Yeah, five. So when, yeah, when that was going on, not many people knew, but my right calf was rotting away. I had a dose of cellulitis in my calf that had got infected. That's why it used to take me fifteen minutes to get up the back stairs because I was yeah. just dying. So that sort of woke me up a little bit, and then I got a scratch on my leg a couple of days before I flew to the Philippines on a buying trip. While I was there, that scratch turned into necrotizing fasciata, which is uh, a flesh-eating bacteria. I nearly lost my leg because of that. Mm. And uh, like a year later, I ended up in hospital with a burst appendix. This was in the and Philippines, wasn't it? The, the, when I had the necrotizing fasciata, that was the Philippines. I didn't get it in the Philippines. I mm. got it here. Yeah. But I remember um, um, I'm, we, you and I were talking back then and you were sending me pictures and I thought, fucking hell. Like a, oh, that was – it was I was, in, I was in ICU for two yeah. weeks and I was there for another two weeks before they let me fly. So then I ended up in hospital with a burst appendix and I got to the point where I'm like – like I've always been a big dude. Like I was 120 kilos when I left school playing A-grade rugby union, fit 120 kilo, not like a, a tubby ass like I am now. And I, I went down went down into Boona one day, my local town, to buy some dog food. And I jumped on the cattle scales. They had cattle scales there. And I weighed myself and I hit the scales at 220 kilo. And I'm like, fuck you. This is it. I'm done. Which is nearly a quarter to, of a ton. Well, I don't know what it is in pound. 500 pound, is it? Yeah, something like that. Like a fat bastard. Mm. And I see I changed the name of that. <laughs> um, so I, it, that really, like, I've always been healthy. I like, I had great sugar levels and no cholesterol and no, uh, blood pressure or anything. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going to survive in much longer. So that was a bit over a year ago. I booked in to get the gastric banding surgery done. That was, when was that? Feb February? Yeah. February. So how much so, weight do they make you lose before you're allowed to get that? Well, they don't make you lose any weight. They advise you to lose as much as possible to get the fat off your liver because right. they have to move your liver to one side to get at your stomach inside. And the more fat that's on your liver, the more difficult it is to get in and fiddle fiddle around with your, your stomach. Right. So on the 18th of January, I started the pre-op diet and I was 220 when I started. I hit surgery at 211 so i lost nine kilo and now i'm 162.4 wow so i've lost wow. like 50 i don't know my mass is shit 58 kilos or something mm. since january this year nice so that's like two and a half 20 kilo bags of dog food on each shoulder yeah oh mate it's a huge amount congratulations yeah like, how are you, you know, feeling it, Look, it's it's hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done because you just don't – you're not used to what to eat. Like I had two boiled eggs this morning and nearly brought them back up. 
energy levels are very low, but nah, I'm 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 good with it. I encourage anyone, anyone that's ever thought about, it, just go and do it. Like it costs nothing. You get private health insurance. You pay a couple of thousand bucks and you'll get all skinny and sexy. And healthy. Yeah. And healthy. Like I've I've got a young kid. He's like Ryan's twelve. My God, I don't want to put like I'm old as dirt. I don't want to pop my clogs before he's twenty one. Yeah. No, screw that. No. Oh, so I look. I'd be lying if I say I was. I wasn't doing it for selfish reasons, but I'm doing it for Ryan. I'm doing it for just my own mental health more than anything else. Well, the benefit is, mate, you're doing it. Like that's the thing. Instead of just when you get to those levels of weight, like you're morbidly obese is the term. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is, when you get to those levels, you're incrementally edging closer to uh, like oh, incredible like health problems. Well, where you're literally little, crushing yourself every, to death. Yes, yes, yeah, you are. Every every little kilo, you you don't notice a kilo going on. You yeah. don't notice it, but you notice twenty. You notice thirty. You notice it. Like yesterday, I had to carry two jerry cans in from the car, and that's forty liters of fuel. Mm. And I carried them up a set of stairs and into the shed. And I'm like, how the shit did I carry that? Yeah. Like I'd lost more weight than the two jerry cans. And I was like rooted by carrying those two jerry cans up a set of stairs. I'm like, shit, I carried 55 kilos, not 40. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm, I'm stoked. I'm really, I'm really happy with the way it's going. I'm, re- I'm really happy. It's Everyone's great. been enjoying watching your uh, your weight loss videos too that you're putting out, you idiot. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's not because I'm looking for attention. That's because it just keeps me accountable. Yeah. That's all it, like Tank Mosley in the US, he did, did his treadmill talk. Mm. That kept him accountable. So, and like I get messages, when's your next video, you fat bastard? I'm like, oh, when, when I hit another goal, I'm not going to like, get on and do a video if I lose 200 grams this week. I could lose 200 grams by going having a poo. Well, you did. <laughs> <laughs> at least. You no, did. At least. You, not, you, not what I want I'm eating. Your last video was a Charlie Chaplin video. It was just you with a card <laughs> and, and giving the bird. <laughs> I literally had nothing to say. I'm like, oh, yeah, that'll, that'll do. Yep. Yeah. But oh, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. it. The hardest part of it is learning not to shop. Yeah. So I go shopping once or once a fortnight with my son. I've I'm still spending two hundred bucks a fortnight on food. Like my fridge is full, my freezers are full. Like I've got food overflowing it everywhere. Like it's crazy. And here I am eating a boiled egg for breakfast. Thank you. So what it, it cuts your stomach down to? Basically, you can only kind of fit five hundred calories a day or something in there. Right? Depending on what you eat, of course. Well, they only took they only took away half of my stomach. Let's say fifteen fifty percent. They were going to take away seventy five percent, but because I um, the the doctor that did my appendicitis when it burst the other year butchered it, and I had had adhesions, mm-hmm. so they couldn't take away as much as they wanted. I can fit like a, a large coffee cup sort of of liquid in my stomach. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could eat a meat pie. I can't eat a sausage roll. Nor should you. How many no, apples I'm can just, you eat? I don't, know. I, don't eat those rotten, I don't eat those rotten things. I just shoot them off people's heads. Like I'm trying to give it like an example. Like, um, But, yeah, it, that's the point is it drastically it's, reduces it. Yeah, like two eggs, two boiled eggs, and that's that's the limit. Like mm. I can't I can't get anything else in, I'm, and, that, and I want to just vomit. 
Yeah. But it's good. Like, but the doctor said I will be fighting malnutrition for the rest of my life. But <laughs> I'd rather be a, a malnourished, sexy looking dude than a fat, dying bastard. <laughs> Are you supplementing? Yeah, I'm taking all the all the hoo-hahs like the I don't know what's this crap called, daily digestive probiotic and centrum things and all this other bloody crap. Yeah, you got to you got to supplement multivitamin for the rest you, of your you life. You should be talking that. to Narelle. You really I need did. to. I did. I did. I got her to send me out a food diary, yep. but it was like two weeks after I had the operation, and my food diary was embarrassing. Like I'd fill it in, and it's like, "What did you eat today? Two grapes." <laughs> That's not even worth writing. <laughs> yeah. How much liquid did you drink? Five hundred mils. Total daily daily calories eighty. Yeah. No, that was that was too embarrassing. <laughs> well, so she's like, got to know what to what you need to supplement properly on to regulate what that, you're losing. At that, at that early stage, I think it was. You know, I was thought I was just overzealous and get tell, having someone to tell me what to eat. Now it's sort of I'm into a bit of a routine and mm. like uh, it's it's getting it's getting better. It's still it's still tough as shit, but it's getting better. Have a chat with yeah. her, mate, because it's less about what to eat and more about what vitamins to take. Because you've yep. got to supplement yeah. that shit for the rest of your life. That's right. Now. Yeah, like I've had I've had my bloods done two weeks ago. And my quacks, my surgeon that did the thing, he's gone through all the bloods and and worked out what I need for the moment. I've got some custom-made vitamin. I don't oh, even yeah, know good. what it is. Perfect. So it's just a matter of just and just fiddling because there's stuff that I can't eat. Like, you, you'd be screwed if you got this, Pat, because I cannot eat ice cream. Oh, really? At all. A teaspoon and I'm done. I want to vomit it. I can't keep ice cream down. I don't get all. to the point where I want to no vomit it until about the foods. four litre mark. <laughs> four litre mark, yeah. That, that used to be me, like a two litre Sarah Lee chocolate. I, yeah, I, I've just had to, I've had to be very, very uh, cognizant of, of what goes in. Before it was just shoving as much as you can, yeah. just get rid of the hunger pains and then go sleep for five hours. Now yeah. it's, no, I, I, I can't do that. My inner monologue good. has been chuckling away while I've been listening to you because you've got a you've got a top on that says excuses. <laughs> yeah. Zero. It's, it's funny. It's funny because I bought this when I was a fat bastard. Yeah. Because it was the only hoodie I could find on eBay that fitted me. Yep. Yeah. Right. There so now it's like, oh yeah, well I've got no excuses now, none whatsoever. Well, yeah. good on you, mate. Yeah. I'm I'm proud of you for fucking doing it. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I'm sure it's a hell of a slog, but your life will be so much better when mm. you get to that time. Well, one weight. of the one of the real big motivators for me to do it was physically it was getting impossible to train dogs. Yeah. It was, it was getting, it was getting hard. You would have seen me trying to do bite work. Like I'd have to nip, especially when Jay was there. Yeah. I had to give the dog to Jay because my back was going to blow up. Yeah. It just became too hard. And now it's like we're, we're flat out doing nose dogs and it's, it's great. I can stay on my feet for three or four hours just running dogs. It's yeah. great. Yeah, I think as well, like especially you know when you're putting on weight, it creeps on, and so you don't it does. You, you don't yeah. realize how shit you feel until you, or how good you used to feel, like because it's so incremental, right? And you you you, you the losses that you take happen incrementally, so you you kind of give up. Oh, I can only do this now. You don't remember do it happening. Now. It just yeah, no, and then like all of a sudden it's... you can do nothing. I blew out once. I blew, <laughs> I got to 113 kilos once of of fat, which for me was very fat. It was when I, I dislocated my knee and fractured the corner of my femur. Mm. And it was, I was at the time Ooh. the fittest, like I was weapon fit at the time and was eating 
you know, like, cause it just to maintain that lifestyle, I'd only just got to the unit and was, you know, training all the time and lived with a bunch of dudes. We pump weights all day and blah, blah, blah. And in six weeks of being on crutches with my knee, like in a brace, I, oh, mate, I got so fat. Mm. I blew out. And, uh, then you, you, once you start going back to it, you're like, holy shit, where do I even begin? Like, I didn't even know mm. how to start. That's, I think the hard part about that kind of thing is when you're past where you've ever been before is you're like, where's the new start line? Like I don't yeah, even well, know how to start. That's the thing with me. I don't even have a, like my goal, like year 12, I was 130 kilos. Like, do I go lighter? Do I get to the weight I was when I was 14? I think you just keep, you, you, mate, you just keep working at it and you'll, you'll level yeah, out where, like you, my, where your body should be comfortable. Mm. Yeah. Like my daughter's 22 and I am lighter now than when she was born. Yeah, right. Good on you. So, she, but like, yeah, she she'll never see she'll never like see uh, the old me again. No way. That's good. Proud of you, bro. Good yeah. work. Yeah, very much. What else you yeah. got to tell us? Let's wrap it up. Yeah, it's still going. Oh, I don't know. I'm busy, 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 busy with work. Busy yeah. turning out dogs. Corona's Corona didn't really affect us too much. Yeah, we picked up a lot of extra work. It's it slowed down dog sales. It. It stopped any of those dogs we were sending overseas. It's completely stopped that. Mm-hmm. But hopefully they're talking about letting dogs fly again in, a, in another month. So yeah, I'll be able to get, get some more dogs in and turn them out. Yeah, I heard definitely nothing before June and then a reassessment then. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're flying dogs interstate now. I've got a dog coming up here next week. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're doing the interstate stuff. So it's just going to – I, I got the last dog out. Um, like four days before the before they stopped all the international dog flights. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I was I was lucky, very lucky. All right. Well, hey, mate, thanks for giving us the time. I know you've been up all night working, and this is a pain in the ass to talk to us for an hour, but really appreciate it from both of us. No, it's not that bad. I'm not taking the piss as much as I like to do that to you. I really, when you said you wanted to sponsor the show early on and have, you know, been a supporter of ours throughout the whole time, like mm. I really appreciate that, mate. It's really well, been a lot to us. Well, that was back in the. That was back in the no homers days. Yeah, it, was, it yeah. was, mate. Yeah, I remember when Pat came to me and told me about it. I thought a big surprise that somebody actually wanted to put money into the show. And Pat said at the study, "Goes, look, I'm I'm going to hold off just right now because we're just going to do a couple of episodes first and get underway. And then if it's any good and we keep going, then I'll um, you know, I'll, I'll reassess it back then." Mm. He said, "Jason's good oh, to go." I, I- I always knew it was going to be something like it wasn't. I just know what Pat's personality is like, and I know what your personality is like, and I just like you, this is not going to be shit. It's it's going to succeed no matter what. Yeah. So and I'm just I'm just glad that we've got an, an Australian based podcast of just what do you call it? Two dickheads talking shit. That's yeah. it. Well, you've certainly been You're part now of we've, our journey. We've got a third dickhead yeah. talking shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm three, three and four. Yeah, I'm talking enough shit for another eight of us. <laughs> All right, I'm going to wrap it up. Thanks for doing it, mate. Appreciate you making Anytime, the time and appreciate mate. you. Yeah, thanks, bud. All right. Anytime, guys. That's it for another episode. Oh, Jason, fucking yes. got, a, got a website? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a pair of hopeless pricks. Uh, yeah, Einsbeck, E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. Yeah. A lot of stock's really hard to come by at the moment because most of Germany shut down. Philippines is not allowed to export. China's barely exporting. It's going to get better, but most stuff is sort of coming through bit by bit. Yeah, mate. So, you know, you gave me that um, 
Ironswick hoodie, that blue hoodie, and it was too small. Gave it to Jane. She loves it. It's one of her favorite hoodies. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, one day yeah. she yep. lost it, and she's like, "Can't find my blue hoodie." And she's got like a couple of blue hoodies, and I was like, "Which one?" She goes, "The uh, Eins Wiener one." The Eins oh, Wiener. Wiener. One. <laughs> 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 uh, do you know how hard it is for me every time on this show where we have to say Einswick Dogwood for me not to say Eins Wiener? <laughs> she's well, like, "Yeah, it's got that." skinny dog on it, the, the little wiener dog. <laughs> well, Einsweck means one purpose, so if it's Einswein, it'd be one dick. <laughs> that's you, my friend. That. Yep. And on that, oh. that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump onto Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you an extra episode. Ten bucks a live Q&A and we're trickling other stuff into... Uh, the different levels. If you want to buy some cool merch, you can do that from Jason. You can get yourself an Einz Wiener hoodie. Yep. Or you can <laughs> yep, support our supporters. Support. Yeah, that's right. Support those who support us. Yep. Or you can get into Teespring and get some cool gear there. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is if you want some information, uh, do it in the Facebook group. Uh, if you have some cool ideas that you want to shoot to us or something, uh, shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Glenn. Okay, Jace, sing us out. Go. No. You grump. <laughs> I hate the song. No way. You're messing me every time in the middle of the bush. Do this, doof, 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 and I'm like, oh, listen to this shit. 